Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Volume 603, Tried and True, but All New. September 1st, 2015. Subscribe with RSS or iTunes and don't miss an episode. Michael Gilbo, your host for Broadway Bullet, and we've got Ken Davenport, Broadway producer, author of the blog Producer's Perspective, and producer of Deaf West's Spring Awakening. We've also got Everett Quinton talking about his new show, Drop Dead Perfect, and his history in the drag performing community. We've got Hip to Hip, the Shakespeare Company, here to talk, and we've got two brand new songs from one of our favorites, Jenna Esposito. thanks to our location sponsor. Thank you, Sid Gold's Request Room, New York City's original rock and roll piano bar for great cocktails and live piano karaoke with Joe McGinty. Sid Gold's Request Room, located at West 26th Street between 6th and 7th Avenues. Up Close. I am so pleased to meet the person sitting in the... <laughs> I can't say that. He's been in here all the time. <laughs> it's just been a while. We've got Ken Davenport here, who is uh, the author of the blog, The Producer's Perspective, uh, an associated podcast with that that's doing very well. Uh, now producer of the new Deaf West Theater production of Spring Awakening that's opening in uh, Broadway in September. And... Uh, Somebody who's been involved and back and forth in and out with Broadway Bullet for a long time. So pleased to have in our relaunch, Ken Davenport here with us. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So we're going to, I'm sure, do a lot of digressions and tangents um, in this podcast. But why don't we start with the first thing of uh, your your hot new project. It's getting a lot of buzz. Uh, Deaf West production of Spring Awakening. Yeah, I'm super excited to bring uh, Spring Awakening back to Broadway. You know, I saw Deaf West production of Big River back in 2005, I think it was actually now. And as well as I saw their Pippin, and and their productions have always affected me. Um, But when I saw Spring Awakening, their production of Spring Awakening just a few weeks ago, it's actually only been a month, uh, within about 15 seconds, I knew that I had to get this production to New York. It's... It defines exactly what I look for in terms of a revival on Broadway, something that 
fans of the original will love and so appreciate it being back there. But it's just seen through a different lens, a different filter that actually enriches or, or makes the original source material feel that much more alive and current and new. The same way the revival of Chicago did that to the original Chicago and, of course, Cabaret, the two of the most successful revivals I've, I personally have felt over the last 20, 30 years. And this does the same thing. It just It's everything you love about Spring Awakening, but makes you go, oh, my gosh, I couldn't see that before and now through this lens it's just so much more clear you know it's kind of weird for me to see that it's already being revived when it was actually one of the first big features that we got on broadway bullet if anybody is wanting to know more history of the show too we have like six different interviews from different cast members directors etc with the show for a lot of background and spring awakening that are still up in our archives yeah, it's it's really thrilling. I remember being in the third row, wasn't too long ago, <laughs> looking up going, oh my gosh, this musical is something Broadway has never seen before. It's going to revolutionize the form. I don't know who this curly-haired blonde kid is, but he's going to be a big star, and this brunette girl, she's yeah. going to be on TV someday. And sure enough, of course, Jonathan and Leah yeah. have gone on to massive careers, and John Gallagher yeah. Jr. Um, it launched stars, and I find that's what actually great shows do. Uh, and I have a feeling that our production is going to launch a few, uh, launch a few uh, stars as well. And again, it's just something totally different. You know, it's when it's it's a cast of deaf and also hearing actors. Um, and the show for me, Spring Awakening, has always been about a group of people, a group of kids that no one will listen to, that can't communicate with another group of people, the parents. And when you layer on the deaf component to that. It just takes on a whole other meaning that you just want to lean in and just get a further insight in, into the story. Is, is there a way for audiences who haven't seen Deaf West productions to sort of explain what they're getting into? Or, you know, I, I, I'm guessing there's some probably some audiences out there that maybe are a little resistant or think that it's going to be all signed or, you know, I mean, is there a way of kind of explaining the theatricality of their creative work? Well, certainly there are YouTube videos yeah. of the Deaf West production of Spring Awakening and of Big River and of, of many of their shows that you can see. And what you'll see is that this is not great deaf theater. This is great theater, period. What's beautiful about it is that the sign becomes part of the choreography. And it's as important as all the other elements. We've been saying, oh, we need quadruple threats, actually, for this show. Singers, actors, dancers, and signers. Uh, and the signing is just as important as all the other elements because it is a form of communication to this group of people, just like singing would be or acting would be or dance. Um, so it just takes on a whole other level. It's like seeing something in 4D instead of 3D. Uh, and it's something that people should just embrace as I'm going to see a great theatrical production. And you won't, you won't even know it's there after a little while. It just is so seamlessly part of the story, especially this one. Um, again, the the Big River and the Pippin were beautiful, but for some reason, some reason this this treatment on the Spring Awakening story just is more seamless. So, uh, what have been the challenges as a producer bringing this to Broadway? Well, as you can imagine, there are all sorts of challenges. Look, we're bringing a cast of people here. We're gonna—I think it's gonna be like twenty-something Broadway debuts, and they're all coming here from many of them from Los Angeles. They don't live in New York, so of course we're helping them find apartments and do all those things. But remember, many of them are deaf, 
So there's a whole other component to, to helping them find a place here. It's hard enough just coming here on your own. Uh, so there's that component. Of course, the rehearsal process is a, is a more complicated process. Um, so when And there's a great BuzzFeed video on how the show is put together. And I recommend to any of, any of your listeners to go grab, grab that video and watch it because it, it really details how the show is rehearsed. For example, how does a deaf actor know when to say a cue, say a line, move to a specific piece of music? I mean, these performers are so unbelievably talented and so tuned into the performance. But it's quite a process. So it's, it's a more complicated rehearsal process than, than other shows. Um, with that, uh, is this, I, I've been wondering, is this a limited run or is this an open run? This is, as our advertising will soon say, absolutely 18 weeks only, not just 18 weeks yeah. only, because look, I was a, I was a producer on It's Only a Play yeah. last year with Nathan Lane and yeah. Matthew Broderick and Megan and all the great stars that we had. And of course we launched, launched that as 19 weeks only. Yeah. And we extended like 17 times, which was great, of course, for yeah. us. Um, and we didn't know we would extend, of course. The show was a massive hit. Then Marty Short said, I want to do this, so we extended. And then Nathan said, I want to come back, so we extended. This is 18 weeks, and that's it. I was lucky enough to get the theater for this production at this time. But as you probably know, getting a theater on Broadway these days is a very difficult mm-hmm. thing to do. And I was told, look, Ken, you can have this theater, the Brooks Atkinson, which is one of my favorite. You theaters. got me on your April fool's joke, by the way, <laughs> on that you were going to open another theater. Cause I was like, if anybody's going to find a way to do it, it's Ken. But. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I got a lot of people. <laughs> so I only, I got that and I was told, listen, you can have these 18 weeks, but there is a show coming in right after you on, on your heels. And I'll tell you right now, that show will be announced in the coming weeks. Mm-hmm. So people will know I'm not just pulling a fast one here. Um, we are going to have to get out of that theater. We're closing on a Saturday, if that tells you mm-hmm. how tight the window is, because we have to load our set out so that they can start. I think it is on Tuesday or Wednesday. So now with straight plays and nonprofit, I would say, I think the there's definitely a trend for the limited run and making it work, but it sounds like a huge cast. This sounds like, how do you, and I mainly ask this because you are a producer, this seems like a hard thing to make financially viable with that big of a cast on a limited run. I mean, most musicals take a lot longer than that to recoup, don't they? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Look, I'll, I remember where I, I was sitting in my office about well, 10 years ago, I guess it was, when, and then talking to Ira Pittleman on the phone, who was the original producer of Spring Awakening. And it was right after they opened at the Atlantic and we were chatting and I said, Hey, what are you doing next? And he said, I think I'm going to do the craziest thing ever. And I said, what? He said, I think I'm going to move spring awakening to Broadway. (laughs) And of course it went on to be a big hit and it wasn't so crazy, but everyone was thinking, Oh, with the themes of the show with a song called totally F, you know, it's, uh, it might be a little crazy. Well, I can honestly say that someone recently asked me, what am I doing uh, this fall on Broadway? And I said, I'm doing something totally crazy. I'm bringing Spring Awakening to Broadway. (laughs) It's true. There actually hasn't been a commercial limited run revival of a musical since 1975. Okay, so I just pulled it out of thin air, but you've always got the numbers behind you. Oh, look, I I used it in my (laughs) negotiations with everybody. You can can bet. I said it hasn't been since the Angela Lansbury Gypsy that, that someone has tried this. 
I am a big believer in trying to do things that people haven't done before, number one. And two, look, this production is way too important to not be seen in this city. It is just too important. So I said, all right, look, it's going to be risky. It's going to be challenging. We're going to roll up our sleeves and we're going to figure out how to do this in the same way that I tried to figure out how to do the Alan Cumming one-man Macbeth. When Alan said, I want to do this, I have 14 weeks and I can't do eight shows a week. I can only Mm -hmm. do six. And I remember talking to him and, and talking to John Tiffany, who directed it, and seeing a bit of the tape and thinking the same thing, which is, I got to get this to Broadway. I got to figure it out. And I'm a guy that likes to try to figure it out. And luckily, on this show, just like it was on Macbeth, mm-hmm. everyone is so passionate about the mission, the vision, and that it must be here, that they're all willing to roll up their sleeves and figure out how they do it. And take less than they normally would if I had called on an open-ended run of a show. Uh, and that that's everyone. My my partner, Cody Lassen, uh, DJ Kurz, David Kurz, who's the artistic director of Deaf West Theater out there, has been a fantastic partner. And, of course, Michael Arden, who you know I, I fell in love with as an actor when I saw him uh, at that crappy little theater on, on 54th Street uh, in Bear. Um, and he, Michael has done something truly breathtaking here. You know, he's done something really beautiful and... I predicted in my blog he's going to be a much sought-after director after this production when people see what he's done. And everyone from from him all the way up and down from Duncan and Steven to everybody has said, yeah, this show has to be there, and we're going to do whatever it takes to get it there. And luckily, my investors are supporting that as well. So is there a chance that they're going to profit? Of course. Look, (laughs) That is impressive. If there's a chance, but 18 weeks, that's to make that happen, that's... Well, thanks, but it's 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 a risky production. There's always, no yeah. question about it, and this may have some higher levels of risk in some ways. But I'm a big believer in producing the most unique forms of entertainment there is. When there is unique entertainment, people talk about it, and that's what sells tickets more than full page ads mm-hmm. in the New York Times. And we'll have one of those coming up. You'll yeah. see it. But <laughs> but unique entertainment is what people talk about and then want to see. So I focus on providing that. And this is a production unlike any anything anyone's ever seen before because of its it's pulling in this different form of expression. And that advertises itself. But I don't do anything unless I feel it has a chance to make money. Uh, and I actually believe in a crazy way that the limited run concept of this gives it even a better shot because it is absolutely 18 weeks only. That's it. That's it. And if you miss this, I swear to you, you will regret it. People will be talking about this certainly come the spring, uh, and, and certainly for years after, people will say, did you see that production of it? Because there will never be anything like that again. Yeah, fantastic. And you've always got so many projects to give it a little push to, and Paul Gordon uh, I talked to for this first half of the season. Uh, you're doing Daddy Long Legs pretty much right at the same time as all this, which is on the flip end of from large to small. What, what kind of attracted you to that? Well, that's, that's another uh, fun story in that I've been a huge fan of Paul Gordon's ever since I saw Jane Eyre years ago and a huge fan of the actress Megan McGinnis, who I've worked with on and off. And uh, we've been friends and she was in the cast of Millie when I was a company manager. And uh, I was on working on the workshop of Little Women that she did and did. And I was always just taken by her as a performer. And I saw her in this musical 
this two-person beautiful sweet musical called Daddy Long Legs, and I was watching it in a workshop setting, so a very cold setting, rehearsal room, fluorescent light. You know, I don't know how we ever sell anything in these readings and workshops, honestly, because <laughs> they're so antiseptic. And I was watching, and about halfway through the first act, I literally was like, "What? What's happening to me? What? What is in the corner of my eye? What is this liquid <laughs> substance?" And I was crying. And there was something about her performance and this musical that just touched me so deeply that again I said, "This show has to be seen in New York. It has to be seen." And I don't care how risky a two-person musical may be or a period, like, but it needs to be done. So what we did was we, again, tried to find a way to do it in the most unique way possible, which is I have a theater on 45th mm -hmm. Street that seats about 150 people to the walls, but really about 130 to 135. It is this beautiful little jewel box, and it steps away from the Hirschfeld or Private Eyes, if you know Private <laughs> Eyes. Depending on my audience, I, I say it's uh, close yeah. to one of those two. And... It's this real intimate environment that reminds me of Sullivan Street and the Fantastics. A real close, intimate experience. And that's the way we're going to do Daddy Long Legs. Everything about the show and about off-Broadway in general, and even Broadway, conventional thinking would say, move it to a small Broadway house. And we looked at that. Or move it to New World Stages and do that at the 350. The economics will look better there. And it's true. And I love New World Stages. I've done a bunch of shows there. But... Everything about this said, do it in a real small space. So that same feeling that I got when I was sitting just a few feet away from Megan, that I could give that to that audience, something so unique. Our theme has been to, that we're creating the next Fantastics, or to put it in a more commercial uh, way, I'm trying to create the Magnolia Bakery of musicals <laughs> when it was not a franchise. Yeah. When it was that little beautiful thing downtown at, on that street that no one could ever find until you bumped into the long line around the corner. Yeah. That's what that's we cupcakes for people outside of New York. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, the cronut, if you will. <laughs> but that's what we expect Daddy Long Lakes to be, this beautiful little secret musical that if you go in, it'll change your life. All right. Thanks a lot. Talk to you later. And best of luck this fall with a busy fall. Thank you very much. The next promotional spot is available for your business. Visit newplayexchange.org for new works to excite your artistry. If you're a playwright, you can post, and if you're an artist or a theater company, you can search for great new plays on lots of criteria and find gems like this one. An Initial Condition by Taylor Grunlow, a play for two men and two women. A determination to create a miracle turns into a journey of the unknown. Chance, a young mathematician, is brought on to help map out cancer in a young girl's body. His determination to solve the problem inside Sarah's body takes chance to places that are unimaginable. Find plays like that at more at newplayexchange.com. If you are a regular listener, or if you have just discovered Broadway Bullet, I have just set up a Patreon page. Please support our program by pledging a dollar amount for each podcast episode. I'm not going to make anything from these donations. All donations will go to expenses in producing the program and providing flexible, part-time jobs to theater students for helping with the editing, follow-up, and more. Visit patreon.com slash broadwaybullet to contribute, or just click the link on our main webpage. Thanks in advance for your support in creating quality theater podcast programming. <laughs> 
Listening room. Jenna Esposito is one of my favorite cabaret singers around here. She actually stopped in on podcast volume 316 to sing uh, live in our studio from her album 13 Minute Me. Well, it was a great piece of news. I ran into her a year later and she talked to me that because of the episode, a producer in San Francisco heard her and booked her for an entire West Coast tour and launched her cabaret career into even higher gear. Well, timing was really good. It turns out she just released a brand new album. That's Amore, songs from the great American-Italian songbook. And uh, we got two original new songs. Now, both of these new songs from her album are written by Ernie Rossi, a shop owner in Little Italy. So we're going to play one song right now, Demi Amore, and we'll play another song from the album a little later in this episode. So once again, here's Jenna Esposito. Demi Amore, Demi Più Piano Tell me you love me tonight Tell me you'll always be there beside me And everything will be alright Amore mio, amore mio, per sempre Tell me we're lovers and we'll love forever Dimi amore, tell me you love me Find that song and many more on Jenna Esposito's album, That's Amore, Songs from the Great American-Italian Songbook. And one extra congratulations goes out to Jen. She also just got engaged for the past week, so wish her well. The next promotional spot is available for your business. Special thanks to our travel sponsor, Travel sponsor is Michael Gilbo. Yep, that's me. At the moment, I'm fronting all these expenses out of pocket. In return, I encourage you, please visit my website, michaelgilbo.com. You can sign up for my mailing list. I do music, playwriting, 
audiobooks, and I give away lots of free stuff to people on my list uh, based on what you're interested in. So stop by michaelgilbo.com. I'm the travel sponsor. Appreciate it. On the boards. I am so pleased to have just a legendary performance. I mean, even on his press release, they have him billed as the legendary Everett Quinton, who has been performing in New York theater and elsewhere all around for quite a while. Uh, definitely legendary performing. Uh, Drop Dead Perfect, which is going to be at the St. Clement's Theater for eight weeks. And uh, Everett is here in the studio with us. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm, I'm doing my nails. That's, that's the drill, man. That's the... <laughs> I'm great, Michael. How are you? Very good. Thank you for inviting me. Yes. Um, I know you've done other things, but clearly when I, when I did some searching around and looking about you before coming in here, it seems that you are dominantly known for, and I even wanted to ask you what the politically correct way to say it was in this day and age, but you do a lot of drag roles. I do. And yeah. even working with uh, Charles Bush, who is... Notori- is it Charles Bush? The Charles Bush. Yeah, yes, Notorious yes, yes. for creating some amazing roles for, you know, drag mm-hmm. performers. And and you're doing, and this play you're doing now is also another drag performance. Right. right? Mm-hmm. So how did you get into that? Is it- Well, I, I got into it. See, I met Charles Ludlam, the artistic director of the Ridiculous Theatrical Company in New York here. And he was my partner for 12 years. And I met him... And then got involved in the ridiculous. And we got involved in the ridiculous. I got involved in the ridiculous. And it saved my mind. See, I, like I said before, when I knew I was a little drag queen from way early, I didn't know what it meant, but I knew this was what I was. And I knew that it was a dangerous thing to be. And I knew, see, I didn't come from people that uh, built you up. And, and let, let, mm. so that you would be able to fly out of the nest. And so I was very, very terrified of life. Then I met Charles Ludlam. Then I went to a rehearsal of a benefit they were doing. And I met George Osterman, who was a member of our company, The Ridiculous. And I met him in the afternoon, and he was this pretty boy, beautiful, beautiful kid. And then at night, I came just close to call time, and he was all dressed to play Bunny Beswick in... Hot Ice, one of Charles Ludlam's plays. And yeah, I was astounded when I saw him. And then I went in and Charles Ludlam, and they were doing this thing called Taboo Tableaus. And it was a scene, it was a benefit for the company. And it was a scene from every play that the company had done up to this time. And so the, the, they were going to end the night with the death scene from Camille. And, and Charles Ludlam was famous for having done Camille. So during the, the, the final rehearsal, I was in the dressing room when Charles was putting on his makeup. And it was the most, it, it was astounding to me. I, I felt like I had come into a world where I belonged. And um, it saved me. And then I got in the company and got, like my, my repertoire is mixed. It's men and women, but I do do a lot of women and I do love doing it. Do you find, when you say it's mixed, do you find that there is a preconception once you oh, admit that, that now you're, you're the drag performer? Absolutely. And, and I think that that has had a, uh, is deleterious the right word? A negative yeah. effect on my career. It, it's held me back somewhat. So I have to now find a way to embrace that aspect and not 
get all nutty about it and, and let it be, let that be what it is. Mm-hmm. And if if I do have to, if there is a price to be paid for it, then I get to pay for it with some kind of pride, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. On the same hand, is that branding, so to speak? Has that helped you in other ways with other I, I with other can't, fun roles? I can't say. I can't say. I mean, who knows? Who knows? Like so there is a whole, definitely, performance subculture out there of drag roles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a certain way that you think that people do it well, and or other places where you don't feel it's done well? Well is what is it? It's subjective, yeah. right? Well is. I mean, who cares? People are doing it. People are. Do you have your own them. philosophy of how you like to approach those roles? About, well, I'm going to go back to George okay. Osterman, and when we were kids, you know, and I've never had anyone to talk about with this either. And here we were, young kids in this theater company, and we talked one day about whether we were drag queens or whether we were actors, and it came down. Um, Charles, um, George Osterman wanted to be an actor who did drag. And I came, I'm a drag queen who can act. And I'm a, and I, I love it. I, I have no philosophy on it. No, I have a general philosophy on how to act. And if you've got to play actions and the danger is people not having an emotional reality. But I do plays. I don't, I'm not a cabaret performer. So I, I, I mean, I have yeah. done it here and there, but that's not my... Now, your new play, Drop Dead Perfect, um, mm-hmm. I believe it's my first-time playwright? Or first uh, he's time written other things, okay. um, but I'm, I don't know. This is the first-time play of his I've done. So. <laughs> <laughs> what, what drew you to this play? He offered it to me. <laughs> <laughs> no, he called... Um, I got a call from the artistic director of Penguin Rep, which put it up first. This is the third time we're doing it. And Joe Brancato is the artistic director. And he said he had this fabulous play that I would be right for. And we did a reading of it and then never heard from him again. And then he called me again and said it was ready to go. And it has been, I I love the role. I love the play. I love the people in it. And now we have a new kid in it. And so I'm, how long have you been with the play so far? This is the third summer. Okay. And it, I, I didn't even expect to... This, I knew that last summer might happen, but I had no idea that this summer might happen. Bringing it back and back and having that gap between, does that give you a chance to kind of rejuice yourself up, re-excite yourself for the role and well, find new I, things? I don't know, but I know I was better in it last summer than I was the summer before. And, and so I'm hoping that this year I'll be better when I go into it. So I, I had, could feel that I had um, not grown. I mean, I have, obviously I grew in it because the first year, I mean, I don't think I did it badly the first year, but then last year I had a, a, was a bit more relaxed and a bit more, um, could be a little more flamboyant. I think. Now, how long have you been doing these uh, acting as a drag performer? Since 76, in my debut, my debut in in drag. So So, so what I'm really curious is society with gay rights and transgender mm -hmm. issues and all that stuff has come so far, obviously, in 40 years. There's 40 years that you're a brand new career. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Things have changed so much. Mm -hmm. Are there trends, things you've noticed that have affected how you perform, why you perform, the types of plays you 
Not me. I I go where the wind blows. So you know, I don't. Um, there's nothing really deliberate about me. I just does the material or the audience reaction has has there been changes in in that trend wise that you've seen over forty years? Oh, I would imagine. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because back in in the day, it was you know it was against the law mm-hmm. to do it in the '60s. Here, it was against the law to do it without a cabaret license, and you had to. When you were in drag, you had to have on, I always heard one article of clothing of your gender, but then someone just told me it was three articles of clothing <laughs> of your gender. And then, you know, it's... it's What a rule. <laughs> what a rule, but the people with the power that are making the rules, people who think they have the power, make these rules, and oh, based on some um, mis- this sense of morality. And then it's always some poor fucker suffers from other, someone else's morality. And it's it, whoever has the power and thinks that they can look down, you know. So then that broke away, and then the Stonewall happened. But you know, I don't think if there wasn't a ridiculous theatrical company and theaters like there's a whole ridiculous movement and theaters like it, people like it, like Ellen Stewart and John Vaccaro and um, John Waters, there would not have been a Stonewall. You know, it, it, all these things came together and grew into one movement and then i think the i mean we survived the 70s with the uh, it was kind of looked down on in the 70s by feminists and um whoever else and it used to bother me that um there were people that judged us for being whatever, too flamboyant or too this or too that, that we it was our mothers, we hated our mothers, or we were getting even with our fathers for some reason. And um, then it dawned on me that those people that were anti-drag were homophobes. And when once I realized that they were in fact homophobic, then it stopped being my problem. It was their problem. They had to solve it. I I didn't have to hear it the way. I had heard it before I discovered that there was nothing wrong with me. You know? and, it, and the same thing is happening now that there's um, in the transgender community, which I'm finding being a little aggravated by, frankly. It's, um, I just heard somewhere in California these transgendered women were able to stop some drag queens from performing at a pride rally. Now, I don't know the, the exact thing, but it just is riled me and it, it's if this and this is not the second time this is not the first time i've talked about this and, and that has to stop that's they can't well anyway let's talk about something fun do you do you have a, any other last final thought out there for i who knows <laughs> in this these such lousy times we live in just be good to yourself that's all that's all i can imagine all right well thank you so much ever quinton for coming thank down you. best of luck with this third run Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Michael. Listening Room. All right, we got that second song for you from Jenna Esposito from That's Amore, songs from the great Italian-American songbook, second original song on her album. I'm probably going to massacre this title. I don't speak Italian that well, but it's Far El Amore Con Te. Far El Amore Con Te You're all Far l'amore con te is all I care to do. Far l'amore con te 
Thank you, Jenna Esposito, for sharing those two brand new songs from your new album with us. Again, that's Amore, songs from the great Italian-American songbook. 
In the best of company. Hip to Hip is a Queens-based, uh, primarily outdoor-based Shakespearean theater company that's been in operation for nine years now. And we have joining us from that organization, we have Jason uh, Jason Marr and David Mold. Mold. Yes. <laughs> How are you guys doing? Good. Great. So what are your, introduce yourselves so they know your voice and, uh, and what's your position with the group? Sure. Um, my name is Jason Marr. I'm the artistic director of Hip to Hip Theater Company, uh, founding artistic director. Okay. And I'm David Mold. I'm the associate artistic director. All right. So first off, before we kind of get into the nitty gritty, tell us just a, a little bit about your company to get started. Uh, well, we uh, founded the company in 2007 with the aim of taking free theater to underserved communities. Uh, we are based in Queens, uh, so that was where we started. Um, and we went from touring one play to two venues to this year we'll be taking two full plays in repertory to 11 New York City area parks. So not just in Queens, though mainly in Queens. Um, but this year we are actually going to be in Manhattan, the Bronx, Jersey City, and uh, gala performances in Southampton. Okay. So how is, how is fitting in Shakespeare in the Park, so to speak, with a, when you have a, such a big established company named something similar? Does that make it harder to when you have a monolithic organization around here? No, actually, I think um, uh, I often say that Joe Papp's uh, New York Shakespeare Festival, now the public theater, was definitely an inspiration uh, for what we do. Uh, so as opposed to uh, standing in the shadow, I think we're sort of carrying on that legacy of taking free theater into the outer boroughs, which is what Joe Papp was um, definitely a a big proponent of at the beginning. And I know the public still does a little bit of outreach into the uh, outer boroughs, uh, but not the way that they originally did. So I see it as carrying the torch. And also with a city the size of New York and the number of parks that there are in New York, there's plenty of room for many theater companies producing. So where do you rehearse, I guess, first off? And how do you rehearse for, I'm sure, such varied locations? Well, Jason may be able to speak to this a little better, but we, we typically rehearse in Central Park. We have an agreement with the Parks Department that we can be in Central Park. So you'll find us out there in the evenings in our little corner of Central Park uh, rehearsing. Um, and we choose the Central Park location uh, just because it's so central for so many of um, the artists that are working with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then if we are uh, experiencing bad weather, we go indoors. We have a couple of studios that we try to get discounted rates, um, being a small nonprofit. Uh, so working out of doors has always been, uh, I guess, we've had various reasons for doing it. One is the expense. We don't have to pay for it. Uh, but the second thing is that it helps the actors get acclimated to the weather, which they're going to have to be dealing with when we're eventually performing in uh, doublets and tights, and, <laughs> and in, the, in the case of Merchant of Venice, which is set in the Victorian period, uh, jackets and um, top hats, those sorts of things. So it helps the actors get used to the climate. I, I would also say as you know, a director that the other thing about working outdoors, it's, it can be a very distracting environment for the actors. So rehearsing outdoors gets them used to People walking by, a bird, <laughs> a bird flying in the middle of the scene, you know, whatever it might Swallowing be. Swallowing a bug. Yeah, yeah, that happened that happens once. Too, I swallowed yeah. the bug right in the middle of a song <laughs> and I was performing outside. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. So is there a certain kind of aesthetic or, um, 
you know, layer you have in your mission? Do you present Shakespeare kind of straight up in the very classic format? Do you like twist modernizing it, so to speak, or putting a conceptual layer on top um, of it? Yes, I think uh, the aesthetic of the company has been rather traditional in that we try to present the plays in the period uh, in not in which they were written, but for which they were written. So, uh, for instance, Midsummer Night's Dream is ancient uh, Greece. Um, so, we have begun to experiment a little with changing the period. Uh, as I said earlier, The Merchant of Venice is set in the Victorian period. Um, and one of the th reasons for the the approach is that when you're out of doors. And you, so we don't have the benefit of a theater to focus the audience. Um, what we do is try to give them a little spectacle with the costumes, uh, with the set. This, uh, this year we're touring with a multi-level modular set. That, so each of the two shows has a very distinct uh, and exciting look. Um, but costumes, uh, I think, are key. And having a period that g gives it something a little exotic for our audience is helpful uh, to, to excite them and to keep them focused. So even like with The Merchant of Venice, which we have um, set in the 1890s, the silhouettes, the color in the costume still has a level of spectacle to it so that you're, you're really keeping the audience uh, focused on the, on, the, on the playing area. Uh, how did the name Hip to Hip come about? Um, uh, when my wife and I started the company, uh, we were trying to think of a name. We, we brought in some friends to get their input. Uh, one thing that we wanted was something connected to Shakespeare because that's going to be a big part of our uh, mission. Uh, and the other thing we wanted is to uh, accentuate the collaborative nature of theater, uh, where it's not a solo artist in a studio or even in front of a, an audience, but it's a group of people. This year we have 36 theater artists, um, 14 actors, and then the rest are uh, directors, designers, production assistants, stage management. And it takes all of those people standing hip to hip in order to make this thing come off. Um, so, and it's a, it's a phrase right out of the comedy of errors um, when the when Dromeo is describing the uh, kitchen wench that is hot for him he said and she's a very big woman he says that she can't be measured hip to hip um, so it's a, a little a little cheeky um, a little about theater and our, our vision for what theater should be so okay I, I want to ask you about an issue since you say you present it fairly traditionally um, there's been a lot of press and discussion in the media uh, recently, and, and, and I've hit on it with several interviews over the course of this first half of the season, about gender parity in casting. Um, and, and that I think we're kind of in this revolving cycle where a lot of times it's hard to do that because people, there are so many companies devoted to the classics, not just Shakespeare, but like 20th century classics where 80% of the roles are for men and um, for women. And do you fall into that trap? Do you try to battle that trap? How do you, how do you... Um, be, because we tour um, two productions in rep with the same actors, obviously, in both, um, in, in both productions, um, what's really most important to us in the casting process is finding versatile people that we can cast. So that leads us to uh, casting people... Um, 
especially women, in, in male roles because we, we have this small company that we're working with and we want to make sure that everyone has good roles in both productions. So in Merchant of Venice, we have, I think, at least three of our actresses are playing um, major male roles. Yeah, I think, and you said it exactly right, in that there are so few roles for women in the classics. Um, and this is something that's happening all over the place, is to uh, cross, uh, what, what we would call, I guess, cross-gender cast. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, um, and the great thing is Shakespeare did the same thing. All, yeah. all, boys played every, all well, the roles. Well, that's my question is, I, I, yeah. can, we get, can we get to a point where it's ever even close to 50-50 with Shakespeare, even for the traditionals, by maybe convincing them that, all right, maybe... Shakespeare didn't cast women, but it is traditional to cross-gender cast, so why can't we cast more women? Absolutely. In I think the theater is uh, all about imagination. Um, it's make-believe. So the audience will go on the journey uh, that you set them on. If we, t if we say this is a guy, it's a guy. If we say it's a girl, it's a girl. Um, and, and actually, I think there's a lot of fun in doing, I know the Globe does this, where they'll do an entire female version of a play or an entire male version, like the Twelfth Night that uh, Mark Rylance brought uh, to Broadway a couple of years ago. Um, and I think it's interesting. It, 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 bring, it highlights different... Um, themes in the play. Uh, it certainly allows the audience to look at it a little differently, but at the end of the day, I think really it's, it's, it's the same story and, uh, and it's the same journey in many ways, and I think most audiences just go along for that. I have seen um, just recently a couple productions in the city of, sh of productions where they cast women in male roles and then they change the uh, the language to reflect that it is a woman. So I saw an Othello that had a it was a all female Othello, um, and it was to me that was the only instance I've ever had where it didn't make sense to me. Because if you're going to tell me that this is uh, if you're going to tell me that this is Othello, then I'll buy it. Um, so in a way, then we are we are adapting the play to make it a different play, uh, which we don't do. Um, well, essentially, it's acting a is about play. Yes. We're, we're putting an imaginary front. We're pretending to be people we're not, and you know, and of course, things over the past you know thirty years have gotten so PC about oh, you shouldn't have anybody act that role except for that specific person who already fits the role. But maybe there is a way of reopening that creativity with Shakespeare. If there's going to be a lot of Shakespearean companies doing Shakespeare, maybe if they're willing to acknowledge that we can go back to that aspect of play. Absolutely. In the yeah. acting. Yeah, and I actually think with Shakespeare, um, it, in, in some ways it's easier to do than with, um, with other writers because I think in, in Shakespeare's writing, it is so much a story, the, the way the story is being presented to the audience. And if you think about the conventions of the Elizabethan theater, I mean, it was basically the same set mm -hmm. for every play in, yeah. in, in, the, in the globe. And, uh, um, you know, they were mostly appearing in their Elizabethan garb. So it, the, the and there was so much direct address to the audience. So there was a really this, this 
this presentational, this storytelling aspect to it. And I think, you know, in the contemporary world, it's the it's the same thing. If you get a group of actors that are really telling the story, then you're just looking to cast the best actors that you can to tell this story, and uh, the the gender becomes less yeah. relevant. And that's especially important for us because what we do, uh, and I warn everybody when I make the offers for the company that it's not an easy gig because mm-hmm. what we do is we show up with a 20-foot box truck. We have, uh, as I said, a multi-level set. We have lights, we have audio, so we have uh, wireless microphones for the actors. Um, And all of this has been slowly developed over the years with the company as we've been able to raise the money for it. But the one thing uh, budget-wise that has uh, constrained us is um, we still are basically doing it ourselves. So it's the actors and the PAs and uh, sometimes even we get the directors uh, help on on those especially long nights. Um, So in a way, you have to get the best actor you can and an actor that's willing to... um, uh, put put in some hard work. Uh, so I mean, the the flip side of it is we we try to put on a good show so that it's a nice showcase uh, for the actors and and directors and designers. Um, but at the end of the day, I think you're right, David. That it's it's you just have to get the best actor you can. If it's a woman, if it's a man, I don't think it matters. Um, maybe to close up your each right ideas, what do you think is each of you can maybe say? Do you have something that you think a lot of audience members hold in their head? A, a thought about Shakespeare that you that a lot of people hold that you feel is a fallacy or an exaggeration well, or, or a myth. Yeah. Well, there's one thing is that I'm always surprised when people say when I say I uh, that the company is dedicated to Shakespeare. They go, Oh, yes, the old English, um, and that's a that's a true falsehood. That the plays are, are it's not old English. It is in fact very modern writing. Shakespeare was creating words. He was making words up that we now have in our uh, everyday vernacular. So um, I guess the biggest misconception is that the language is somehow antiquated, when in fact it is so modern, um, it's sort of more modern than modern. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I agree with what Jason was just saying, and I also, you know, to add on to that is that um, you know, you hear people say, oh, I, well, I'm not crazy about Shakespeare. I don't know whether I'm going to understand it. Um, and when the actors are working the language the way the language needs to be worked, audiences are going to get it. Um, so, you know, I, I, I really feel that, um, that that's a misconception that audiences have. They may have seen some productions that lacked that. Um, but when when the actors are really focused on what the characters are fighting for and really using the language to make that happen, I think it's very, very clear. Yeah, absolutely. And we, and we do, and that's also an aesthetic of the company is to make uh, sure that all of our productions are highly accessible because we are trying to bring in uh, not your typical theater goer um, in the hopes of creating some theater goers. All right. Well, thank you very much for stopping by. I wish you all the best of luck in your and as you bring your show to the Fringe Festival as well. That's right, yeah. Our production of Merchant comes to the Fringe August 19, 20, and 26 down in the East Village. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for coming by. Okay, thank you. Curtain Call. Well, that just about wraps up another episode. We got another episode coming in two weeks, September 15th. Got some great guests. We've got Paul Gordon, 
He wrote Jane Eyre a while back and is the composer of the new musical Daddy Long Legs. It also turned out that he was instrumental in our other interview from the week, which is Broadway actresses Sarah Litzinger and Kate Reinders, who formed Tasty Skank, and we featured them way back when, when they were just starting out, and they are reuniting. So their fun is always in the studio. And we're going to learn a little bit about NAMPT, the National American Musical Theater Festival in New York. So until then, if you aren't subscribed to the podcast already, why don't you do that? It's easy. We got links on the front page of our website, broadwaybullet.com, and you can subscribe through iTunes or RSS. Also, if any of these interviews, uh, if any of the subjects were really interesting to you, we do actually post the full unedited interviews. Um, There's usually much more material, and those are on our website as well, or you can find them on our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash broadway-bullet, and spread that around. Tell your friends about Broadway Bullet. Uh, If you're in a university or high school, tell your students, tell your friends, tell your teachers, whatever. Get the word out there. It's good to be back, and I will see everybody again in two weeks with a brand new episode of Broadway Bullet. Broadway Bullet is hosted and produced by Michael Gilbo, associate producer and media manager, Caroline Reyes. We'd also like to give one extra thanks again to our location sponsor, Sid Gold's Request Room, right in the heart of Manhattan. I guarantee it's a fun place and a really different vibe for a piano bar, so check them out when you're in NYC. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, Go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.